0: Welcome to our newest installment of the More Conversations podcast, sponsored by the Morehouse College, Andrew Young Center for Global Leadership. I am your host, Alexander Hurley. I am a junior business administration major with a concentration in accounting from Atlanta, Georgia. And I am super excited to announce we have a very special guest with us today, a former United States ambassador to the United Nations, Ambassador Andrew Young. And in addition to serving in this position, he's also served as the two-term mayor of Atlanta. Uh, Congressman from Georgia's 5th District, and as a civil rights leader. So, Ambassador Young, it's a pleasure to be here with you, and I'm really excited for our conversation.
1: Well, basically, you missed the part. The important part is that I'm a preacher. <laughs> <laughs> yes, <laughs> And yes. that, uh, actually, I have thought of all of these other jobs as a continuation of my ministry, that... Uh, When I was uh, at Congress, the 235 members there were my parish. Uh, When I went to the U.N., we didn't have but about 180 nations in the U.N. then. That was my my congregation. Right. Came back to Atlanta with, you know, about a million people when we started. Almost seven million now. That was my church. (laughs) And so... I have found that the the model of pastoral leadership really works very well everywhere. Probably would work in business, though I've never been in business long enough to make any money.
0: Well, I think that the the important part that you mentioned there is community. Community is something that works well in business and government and international affairs. And and that's actually where I wanted to begin. Um, When I talk to people, I find that you learn the most about them when they talk about their past. And so I'd like to begin with kind of your early life and I'd like to hear a little bit about your family and some of the most uh, influential experiences you had in your informative years and kind of how they shaped you and into the work that you'd eventually go on to do. So talk to us a little bit about that.
1: Well, you know, to me, I, it's almost like I was ordained or predestined <laughs> from, from birth. Uh, I was born in New Orleans in the middle of a block in a poor working class neighborhood, but it was integrated. Uh, there were black and white families, but there was an Irish grocery store on one corner, an Italian bar on the other corner. And the Nazi Party was on the third corner, and a Chevrolet dealership around the fourth corner, and I'm right dead in the middle. So, all the way back to my father was a dentist, and his office was there, uh, and it was interesting because most of his patients were black, uh, but the white patients would want to sneak in at night <laughs> when they had a toothache. Yeah. So we got along pretty well in the community. And I, I can remember at four years old, 1936, uh, I asked my father as we were walking by the Nazi party headquarters, why are these people Heil and Hitler? And he said, these are white supremacists. And white supremacy is a sickness. And he said, you don't get angry and upset with sick people. He said, you do what you can to help them, but mostly stay out of the way because you don't want to catch their sickness. Wow. And,
0: that uh, sickness being hatred? Huh? That sickness being hatred
1: of well, he didn't. he never said hatred. Hmm. He said sickness. And so my view of white supremacy has always been it's their insecurity and it's their sickness, it's their problem. Um, And I never felt that they hated me because I'd walk by there, um, my aunt lived two doors behind them and um, I could sit on her porch and look in the window and watch them how Hitler and sing Deutschland über alles. And, uh, and I knew that we were almost at war with Hitler, with Germany. In the dentistry business, a lot of the dental suppliers were Jewish. So there was a active concern for what was going on in Europe. Uh, and But at four years old, my father uh, took me another step. He took me to the movies to see the 1936 Olympics where Jesse Owens uh, won the 100-meter dash, and Hitler was supposed to give him his medal. But instead, he got up, and with all of his stormtroopers stormed out of the stadium. And my father said, Well, see, he is trying to upset people. he's upset. I said, but that's not that's not Jesse's problem. So Jesse's cool. See, Jesse paid no attention to him. He just went on and won three more gold medals. Yeah. <laughs> and he, he said, That's he said, if you get upset with these people, He said, when you lose your temper and when you get upset, the blood rushes from your veins, I mean from your head, your brain, to your fists and your feet. And he was five feet four. And he says, you're probably never going to be more than five, six, eight at most. He said, so you're not going to be able to beat up anybody. So uh, it doesn't pay for you to lose your temper. (laughs) Don't get mad, get smart. He said, You may not be as big as anybody, but if you keep calm and use your mind, you can outthink or think with anybody, especially if they are getting upset. You make sure you don't get upset with them. My father wanted me to be a dentist. And I knew I didn't want to be a dentist, but I like science. I had good science teachers in high school, um, and I ended up majoring in biology and uh, chemistry and um, a pre-dental, pre-med, which I knew I wasn't interested in. And so I was really on the verge of flunking out, not like you. (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> <laughs> i understand you're a great student helpful uh, but i try uh, thank you, you no know, so. but it it i think i was a good student also but um uh, i was about to drop out uh, between my junior and senior year. well yeah my junior and senior year um uh, and I was lifeguard at a swimming pool in the same neighborhood where my elementary school was because uh, I'd been on Howard's swim team and track team. And, you know, I, I, was, I was okay. I was enjoying myself. Uh, and this guy comes in and falls in the pool and almost drowns. And I realize he's high on heroin or something. And we pull him out, and sitting on the side of the pool, uh, he says to me, "I know you. You don't remember me, do you?" I said, "Where'd we meet? Where we? Where? Where, where from?" He said, "We got put out of Miss Sarah of Oakland's class. Ah, uh, he was in a third grade.
0: He was a friend and, from the older days, right?"
1: And I said, "Damn, where have you been?" He said, You never can. I said, You never came back to school. He said, Well, my mama was making a dollar a day plus coffee, and there were six of us, and she couldn't take a day off to come see about me. I said, Well, what have you been doing? He said, I've been in and out of every reform school and prison in the state of Louisiana, including Angola Penitentiary. See? And he said what are you doing and i said well i'm not doing much i'm about i'm in college but i'm kind of messing up and he lit into me and called me all kinds of mf's <laughs> and said that if if i if he heard that i flunked out of school he'd catch up with me and he'd beat the living daylights out of me but he didn't say living daylights i mean he he gave me one of those Richard Pryor. <laughs> oh, my goodness. Uh, cussing okay. outs. Yeah. So, when I left Howard, I knew I had a college degree and didn't know anything. <laughs> <laughs> and I didn't have a clue about what I wanted to do with my life. And uh, I had, well, my parent, you, you couldn't stay in hotels and and we stopped at Kings Mountain, North Carolina, where there was a congregational school, and there happened to be a church conference going on. Well, my parents went to the church conference, and I decided to go out for a run. And uh, I'd been on Howard's track team and swimming team, and so I was in very good shape. But I was I was running. You know, slightly downhill, which meant I was running too fast. <laughs> uh, <laughs> yeah. For you know, and then I saw a path up mountain, and I decided I was going to run to the top of the mountain. Well, when I got to the top of the mountain, I was, I was gasping for breath. I, I was, I almost blacked out. Uh, but. When I kind of caught my breath and looked out for the first time, I saw a world that looked different. <laughs> because what I saw was that everything seemed to have a purpose the clouds, the trees, the cornfields, you know, uh, and it was a realization that everything about this universe has meaning. And if everything in the universe has meaning, <laughs> I must have meaning. <laughs> you got meaning, you got you got purpose. And uh and I I didn't know what it was, but I said I'm put here for some purpose. And um I don't need to know what it is. I don't need to plan for it. I'll just take it one day at a time, and whatever will be, will be. And so that, I mean, I came down from that mountain with a sense of peace and um, because I I was convinced that uh, everything was going to be all right, that whoever created heaven and earth created me. And if heaven and earth has meaning, I have meaning. Yes. And so it was a kind of a cosmological awakening. <laughs> you know, other than Dr. King and one or two of us, I mean, mo- most of the folk in the movement were pretty rough kids. Mm-hmm. And they came from pretty bitter, angry backgrounds. And uh, he was able to command their respect, uh, but he never argued. Uh, he would sit quiet in meetings, and, but he'd expect me to argue. <laughs> and um, there was always an angry, radical wing. And one day, uh, I went along with him. Uh, And he said, excuse me, fellas, I need to run to the restaurant. And he said, Andy, meet me in my office. And I I went back there and he said, uh, when he came back from the restaurant, he said, what in the world are you doing? (laughs) I said, nothing. He said, you know what they're talking about is crazy. He said, look, I know my life is on the line. He said, but in order for me to decide what I give my life to, I need you to be as far to the right and as conservative as you possibly can be. And you, you give me room. As I say, they're going to be way out here Uh, because they're emotional, they're upset. They got a right to be upset. He said, you know better. He said, if you go with them, you get me killed for nothing. Wow. (laughs) And he said, you have to be, whether you believe it or not, you have to be as reasonable, as conservative as you possibly can, because that gives me more room in between to decide, you know, Just what is it I want to, and how I'm willing to offer my life. He said, because every decision we made could get me killed, that death is not something to fear. And uh, that was one of Dr. King's uh, strengths. He said, Look, you're going to (laughs) die. He said, Death is the ultimate democracy and you don't have anything to say about when you die, where you die, or how you die. The only thing you choice you have is what is it you're willing to give your life for? And, um, and he would always make a joke of it, uh, and start preaching your funeral, uh, of anybody that was around. And, uh, he made you laugh at your own death. He, he preached the funeral more like a comedian. My, my generation was Eddie Murphy, Richard Pryor, uh, red Fox, (laughs) Uh, you know, and, uh, he could make a collage of comedy acts, but he'd always do it in terms of preaching your funeral. (laughs) And, um, in doing that, he made us laugh at our own death. And that was his way of getting help, helping us get over our fear of death. But I had already gone through that with my grandmother. and um, But uh, all of this really shaped not only my life, but the way I looked at everything. The thing about Birmingham was there had been 60 bombings of homes in 1961 and 62, and it wasn't even in the paper in Atlanta. See, but everybody there, know Fred Shuttlesworth's church had been bombed three times. And um, so everybody knew that. And so we had nothing to lose by a total boycott. So from, uh, I guess it started about the 1st of March right on through May, for 90 days, nobody black in Birmingham bought anything but food or medicine. And so we really shut down the economy. And, but that was because there had been a decade of persecution and injustice uh, that had been covered up. Uh, it was still being covered up. When Martin Luther King went to jail in Birmingham, there was a little article about that big on page 36 of the Daily Paper. <laughs> See, and But what we were able to do was we were able to have ABC, CBS, and NBC come down from New York. So our demonstrations had to be in the morning because uh, they had to fly the film back to New York on by one o'clock to get to the six o'clock news. Like we used to, we didn't have television, but. but used to look at Superman, listen to Superman on the radio. And Superman was about truth, justice, justice in and the, the American, American way. way. <laughs> <laughs> That's right. And everybody grew up on that, you know. Boy Scouts had values. You, you learn, uh, uh, Martin Luther King said, no lie can live forever. Truth forever on the scaffold, wrong forever on the throne. But the scaffold sways the future. But behind the dim unknown standeth God within the shadows, keeping watch above his own. I mean, we grew up in a nation of values, and all of those values are now being challenged and threatened by people who are still almost as sick as the Nazis were on the corner of my house when I was four years old. That's 85 years, and I'm still back in the same place, only on a bigger screen. You know, the first thing that... uh, popped into my mind, and I haven't thought of it in a long time. But I know the Lord. I know the Lord done laid his hand on me, see? And uh, I think that's, that's my legacy, that um, I happen to be in the right place at the right time, and I tried to do the right thing. Not because it was profitable, not because it was important or, or powerful, but just because it was. It was right, and um, and it it never seemed right. Like my daddy didn't want me to be a go to seminary, because he said all the preachers I know are either poor or crooked, <laughs> and I don't <laughs> want you to be either, see. Uh, but um, he thought primarily of success as economic security, and I've never been economically secure, but I've never been hungry, and I, I got four kids through college, and I've, I've, I've never – I have never needed or wanted anything, uh, but I've never had a lot to give away or to, and I've managed to give away a lot that I've had, Uh, but. um,
0: You've managed to make a difference in people's lives.
1: Yeah, and I've done wherever I've been put, I've managed to do my best and, um, Because I I go back to that song. I know the Lord and laid his hand on me. (laughs) And that it's not. It's. Well, I didn't grow up with the crown. (laughs) (laughs)
0: Um, Everyone, thank you again for listening to this edition of the More Conversations podcast. And I'm your host, Alexander Hurley. And thanks for listening.